What we're going to begin today is a series uh, from the Gospels. It, it's, we're in between Christmas and we're headed to Easter. And in this time of the year, I like to focus on Jesus and his teachings or his miracles or his, uh, you know, his ministry. We, we always try to change it up a little bit. And uh, today we're going to begin in Luke chapter 2. Verses 39 through 52, uh, if you were with us for Christmas Eve, you'll recall that I, I made quite a bit of hay out of the fact that was born as a child, you know, as uh, I forget who it was that was asked, you know, something about, you know, that, that, that proclaimed he was born at a very young age, you know, but the fact that God chose to send Jesus as a child to entrust him to two human beings who were not perfect in and of themselves, who would make mistakes with his son. What a joy. What, what, what delight we should have in the fact that God sent Jesus as a baby. Perfectly, completely dependent on other people for his nourishment, for his safety, for his warmth. He was completely dependent. And for several, several years as he grew, and, and this is where we, we begin with this passage in verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus grew. Jesus had to learn how to speak. His mom and his dad taught him how to speak. They taught him how to walk. I mean, just think, the Creator of the universe, He who is the Word of God, when God spoke, He is the one that did that. And two of his creations, one of which gave birth to him and he carries her DNA in his body. And sometimes I wonder as we study the, the molecular level of, of things, how does God see us? You know, we, we see each other, we see faces, we see eyes, we see hair. I, I wonder sometimes, does God see every single cell? Does he recognize us on a cellular level? I don't know. I just you know I don't recognize your fingerprints, for instance. We have to ink them up and put them on paper. I wonder if when God sees us, he sees those details. And here you have Jesus, who was the one who made us, who who is even the descendant of one of these humans by the flesh. And they're teaching him how to walk. They're teaching him how to tie on his sandals. Teach him how to use a fork or a knife if he needed to. I don't know if they had forks back then, to be honest. But teaching him how to live. And not only that, but he's increasing in wisdom there. The, Joseph would have been responsible for teaching Jesus the Mosaic Law. He was, you know... Moses told the Israelites, teach them diligently. 
When you rise, when you lay down, as you're going along the way, you're to be teaching them. So just think that, that Joseph, God chose Joseph, not only Mary for who she was, but Joseph for who he is, that he would teach Jesus the law. And so Jesus grew. He continued to grow and to become strong. He increased in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. And showing how Joseph and Mary taught Jesus and raised Jesus and what kind of a a life he led, we get this one story of time in between his birth and his ministry. All the other Gospels go straight to uh, John's ministry and that baptism. And uh, Matthew begins with a little bit of a story after the birth of, of the flight to Egypt. But here Luke, who is who has searched everything out. He's a Gentile. He wasn't even around at that time. So we can guess who he got this information from. This is most likely information that Mary shared with Luke as he was investigating and writing this historical account. But he tells us in verse 41, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. They were observant and good Jewish people. They went to the feast every year. They kept the law. When he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And the fact that he was 12 seems to be important. I mean, we have 12 tribes, 12 disciples. Uh, I don't know if it was the practice at the time of Jesus. Some of the things I've read said that, yes, when a boy turned 13, he became a bar mitzvah, which is a son of the commandment. A bar mitzvah isn't a party. The party that you have for a bar mitzvah just gets called a bar mitzvah. But the person becomes a bar mitzvah. Or if she's a girl, a bat mitzvah. A daughter of the commandment. A son of the commandment. And and there is some evidence that at 13, that was when that change took place the the jewish people had children and they had adults they did not have teenagers the idea of teenagers uh, was foreign to them you had children and you had adults and when a child became an adult he became a, a son of the commandment he no longer relied upon his father he himself answered for his actions and his behavior See, up until this time, Jesus was under the protection and, the, and the, the headship of Joseph who would be teaching him. And if Jesus ever did anything wrong, not that he did, but if a boy did something wrong, it would go to the Father to protect him and to guide him and teach him. If a, if a child made a vow, let's say, that vow could not be held. But a 13-year-old man makes a vow, that vow is solid. And so as it was their custom, when he was 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And we are told in verse 43, as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. But supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Jesus wasn't the type of kid to give his parents trouble. Jesus was so reliable, 
that as they traveled for an entire day, they never worried about where he was. I can barely walk down a city street without looking around for my kids. Because I remember walking a kid and to get left somewhere because you didn't realize everybody else had crossed the street and you were too busy looking at a window or at a tree or something. They don't even think about looking for him in the caravan. They just accept the fact that he is most likely with some of their relatives that they are traveling with. And when they get to the place that they're stopping, they begin looking for him and they realize he's not there. And so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And I wonder if it took them a full day. You know, if you're traveling with a caravan as opposed to being on your own, usually you can travel just a little bit faster on your own. And if you've left your son in the capital city, chances are you'll travel just a little bit faster than that. So they travel back to Jerusalem. Uh, Then, after three days... And we don't know if that three days meant they looked in Jerusalem for three days. I doubt that. Chances are they had a full day of going, a day or a partial day coming back, and then they started looking for him. And on the next day, that must have been a very troublesome night. They hadn't found him yet. But on the next day, the third day, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answer. So he's asking questions, and so he's asking good questions. He's asking intelligent questions that make other people say, wow, that's a really great question. They're amazed at his understanding of that he would ask such a question, and they're amazed at the answers he gives. He's not just asking questions, he's answering Questions. Maybe he's answering other questions because the way teaching was back then was a, a give and a take. You would throw out one thing and you would answer it with another question and you would grow in your knowledge in this way. And they are amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents, when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? And, and this, uh, this isn't just, you know, why, why were you looking for me? He probably understood and knew that they wanted to look for him. It's not so much a question of why were you looking for me. It's why did you feel the need to go anywhere else looking for me? Because the very next thing he says is, Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Did you not know I needed to be here? And, and house is italics like that because house isn't in the, the original. It, literally, Jesus says, didn't you know I needed to be about my father's? And so some translations have changed it to my father's business, my father's work. Don't you think I needed to be doing what my father does? And then other translations, because he's in the temple, well, didn't you think you, I needed to be in my father's house? But we really, it's just, didn't you know I needed to be doing or in my father's? Possessive, but nothing's filled in for that blank there. Didn't you know that I needed to be about my father's ways? That I would be where my father is? That I would be doing what my father would be doing? That I would be in my father's house? 
Why, you know, because I mean, think of it. If you had a kid and they, they stayed behind and they stayed in Jerusalem, maybe, maybe you'd go looking for them at a well. Maybe you'd go looking for them in a swimming hole. Maybe you'd go looking for them in this area, that area. I mean, let's just be honest. How many of us with 12-year-old kids, or when your kids were 12 years old, if you lost them in a, in a small place where they could walk to different areas, you would think, well, they're probably in the church. No, they're going to go to the toy store, right? Or they're going to go to the, the, the restaurant. Or they're going to go somewhere fun. We're not going to naturally assume our little children go to church or to the temple. And, and, and notice his, 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 his parents are astonished. Now, the word astonished earlier on in verse 48, it's similar to amazed. Remember, all the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. His parents are not astonished at his teaching. That is not what astonishes them. This, this word astonished is, is actually a lot of times later on in Jesus' ministry when he's teaching, people are astonished at his teaching. That, that's the word used to describe how the crowds perceive his teaching. They're, 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 uh, the word astonished means, so, so the word earlier to be amazed kind of means to be dumbfounded or, or, or to be beside yourself. Like you, you just can't believe it. Astonished has the idea of um, to strike out, to a, strike with panic. Like, like they, they just cannot comprehend. It's, it's not just that they're, they're, they're impressed. Wow, that was really good. They can't comprehend what he is doing. Okay, it, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It, it, it would be since it's a it's football season and the the, um, the bowl games are all going on. It, it's the difference of a quarterback throwing a perfect spiral, long bomb, touchdown. They have that ability. Wonderful to see it. That's amazed. Everybody, wow, that was awesome. Did you see that? That's amazed. Okay, astonished is when the quarterback is being taken to the ground and the ball pops out and somehow a lineman catches it and rumbles down the field all 270 pounds of him and scores a touchdown. You know, those, those miracle things or the ones where the guy, you know, the ball gets batted and it just lands in somebody else's hands and they run down for the game-winning touchdown. That is astonished. We just can't believe it even happened. That's different than being amazed. Wow, that was really awesome. This is, I can't believe I just saw that. My eyes are still trying to comprehend what they saw. We need the replay. His parents are in that territory. They are not amazed with how great his teaching is and his questions and his understanding and his insight. They can't comprehend what he is doing in Jerusalem when they left Jerusalem three days ago. You might expect this from somebody else's kid, but not their kid. Their kid is good. In fact, their kid is perfect. Can you imagine how it must have been to raise a kid that never did anything wrong? I mean, just think about that. Never had to be spanked. Never had to be told off. Never had to be told to do something twice. He never sinned. And because he never sinned, he isn't sinning now. 
He didn't tell his parents he was staying in Jerusalem. He didn't, he let them go. He knew exactly what he was doing. And when they show up, he isn't even apologetic. He has a question for them. They're saying, how are you able to treat us like this? What are you doing to us? We've been frantically looking for you. He doesn't have an answer. He has a question. What were you looking for me for? Didn't you know I needed to be here? He's a 12-year-old kid. And he's not sinning. What is going on in this passage? Jesus isn't acting out of selfishness. He is not acting like a rebellious young kid doing what he wants to do and not what his parents want to do. No, Jesus is 12 years old. And Jesus is about to become, if we believe that even back then, at 13, a young Jewish boy would become a Jewish man, a son of the the commandments, he is about to take on the mantle of adulthood in his culture. But he is also letting his parents know that things change just a bit. See, his behavior to them is uh, bewildering. They're astonished. They don't understand it. Notice what it's said there that, that, uh, well, I I guess we haven't gotten there yet. In verse 50, I'm going to get there in a minute there, but uh, in 50 it says they did not understand the statement which he had made. They don't understand. They don't understand his statement. They don't understand what he is saying to them. But earlier we saw that Jesus had great understanding. Everybody was marveling and amazed at Jesus' understanding and his wisdom and his questions and his answers. But his parents don't understand. It looks like disobedience. It looks like rebellion. But this guy, he doesn't sin. He doesn't rebel. So what's going on? And the answer is is that he is teaching. He is using this opportunity to teach his parents something. He is using this opportunity to tell them that things are changing in life. And he's using a very specific way to do it. But it is baffling to them. And I would say that for us, we often do not understand God's behavior, do we? They don't understand his behavior. They don't understand what he is doing. And we often do not understand God's behavior in our own lives. How, how often have you wondered to yourself, what is God doing? Why is God allowing this to happen? Why is God leading me on this path? It doesn't look like there's a way out. What is God doing? We are often confused and astonished at God's behavior. We don't understand. He took the Israelites and led them to the Red Sea. They had the sea to the back of them and then then the Pharaoh's army coming at them. And they said, what are we going to do? We're between an army and a sea. It didn't make sense to them. They didn't understand. But God had a greater purpose, a greater desire. He wanted to show them His power. He'd shown them ten plagues. They still needed to see it. They still needed to grow. Even after that, even after he split the sea and they walked right through, it wasn't but two months later, they're grumbling, we don't have any food. Guess why they didn't have any food? Because God took them to a place where they wouldn't be able to find food. He took them to a place where their stores would run out. He took them to a place where they would experience hunger. And they didn't understand. 
We don't understand. But it was God's way of giving them manna and saying, every day you're going to rely upon me. Every day I'm going to bring the bread. Every day I'm going to bring the meat. I'm going to provide for you every day. But they had to get to that place of hunger first and they didn't understand. And in our lives, we do not understand God's behavior a lot of the time. We might be led into a place of hunger and we wonder, God, You're the provider. Why are You taking me here? He may withhold His provision for a period of time and we ask ourselves and we ask Him, God, why are You doing this? We don't understand. But we have to trust that He is good. We have to trust that He loves us. And that is what is happening here. Jesus is telling His parents by this behavior. He's not sinning. He's not hating them. He's not treating them poorly, although that is what they say to Him. When they saw Him, they were astonished. His mother said to Him, Son, why have You treated us this way? Why have You done this to us? Why have You acted and caused this pain for us? Uh, And she says, Behold, Your Father and I have been anxiously looking for You. That word anxiously has the idea of pain wrapped up into it. They are suffering pain in looking for Him. They were worried about Him. That that feeling when you lose a kid just for a few minutes, that sinking feeling in your heart and your gut, they lived with that for two days. Why have you treated us this way? Behold, your Father and I have been anxiously Looking for you. They they were hurting. Looking for him. And in fact, it kind of calls back to my mind what Simeon told her, that a sword would pierce her own soul. And to a certain extent, that's what Jesus is trying to show them. Jesus, in a a way, by by this behavior and by this experience for them, he's, He's drawing a line. And that's why He says to him, why is it that you were looking for Me? Did you not know that I had to be in My Father's house? Jesus is saying, My life is not going to be governed by you. Mary says, Your Father and I. Jesus says, I had to be in My Father's house. There's a a conflict. Your Father and I, meaning Joseph and Mary. My Father's house, meaning His Heavenly Father. See, for 12 years, He has done everything they told Him to do. He has been their child. But He is about to become a son of the covenant, son of the commandment. He is about to, He is at some point going to have an earthly ministry. Whatever, uh, you know, we, we like to call Him a carpenter. There's no evidence that Jesus was ever a carpenter. We just know that Joseph was. And because usually a son followed in his father's footsteps, we assume Jesus became a carpenter, but at some time, at some time in his life, he stopped working. His father doesn't show up in the later story, so we understand that Joseph died at some point between this and Jesus beginning his ministry. So at some point, Jesus, as the oldest son, was responsible for Mary, and he stopped working the provision that she could expect from His work stopped. 
any provision she would get from then on. And from what we see in the Gospel of John is it seems like he took care of her the rest of his life because at the cross, he gave her into the care of John. But when he started his ministry, her care and her provision from him, it wasn't going to be relying upon his hands and his work. It was going to be relying upon his ministry. And what he is telling them in this, in this behavior and this action is that he is not going to be following them anymore. He is following his Father in heaven. And the day will come when he will go his own way and he will do things that Mary will find baffling. And at times she and her other sons will come and they'll try to get him. They'll try to bring him away from the crowds. The time will come when he'll go to the cross and she will weep watching her son die. But he is going to be following the Father in heaven. And this is something that they are learning by this experience. He couldn't just tell them this. He is acting it out for them. And the same is true for us. We, we, we follow our parents. We follow those around us. There are many who have influence in our lives. But eventually and ultimately, following God must be our highest priority. Just as Jesus said, I have to be about my Father's business or in my Father's house, for us too, the first focus, our highest priority, needs to be following God. Hopefully we follow God with those around us and in our lives. But our highest priority needs to be following God. And that's what Jesus is showing them and telling them. That's why He says, why is it you were looking for Me? First, He's saying, you should have known where I was going to be. You know? The, the, the question that he is asking him, and when he says, did you not know? That word know is the, the idea that it was necessary. It was inevitable that I would be here. It just, I had to. It was inevitable. You should have known exactly. You should have known immediately where I was going to be. Why are you looking for me? And then, after this, they don't understand the statement. They they in their heads. But in verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. She doesn't quite understand, but she treasures it. She holds on to it. But notice, after he made it very clear, I'm about to be following the Father, and I have to be about the Father's house and in the Father's business. But after that, he went down with them and came to Nazareth. He didn't stay in Jerusalem. He didn't argue for staying in Jerusalem. No. He was teaching them. It wasn't, I want to be here. I don't want to go home. It was an exercise to teach them. And he continued in subjection to them. To, to be in subjection to them is to literally place yourself under another. To place yourself under them. And in, in context, you've got to understand that Jesus put Himself into submission to them. It wasn't like they could put Him into it. But He willingly 
submitted himself to them. He put himself into subjection to them. They didn't place him under it. He chose. So even though he says, look, the the day is coming when I'm going to follow the Father in heaven. The day is coming when I'm not going to listen to you and I'm going to listen to him. But he still placed himself under their authority. We even see glimpses of this at the wedding in Cana where Jesus tells Mary, my time is not here yet. It is not my time. But she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And you get a sense that even though he is his own person and he is following the Father, he still submits to his mother in this area. In this area, I'll do what you ask me to do, Mom. And that's, that's what we do in life. We, we submit ourselves to one another. Uh, we humble ourselves. And, and that's, remember our, 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 overreaching, our overarching verse from 1 Peter 5, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. We humble ourselves under God. To, to trust in Him, to follow Him, to believe in Him. And that's what Jesus is doing when He says, I have to be in my Father's house. But He also subjects Himself to His parents. To those faulty human beings who are in charge of Him. Who didn't go looking directly in the temple, but it took them over a day to find Him once they got to Jerusalem because they were looking in all the wrong places. He doesn't submit Himself to them because they're perfect. He doesn't submit Himself to them because they're better or wiser or smarter. He submits Himself to them because it is right to. They're His parents. He's still living with them. He is still their son. He subjects Himself to them. And so for us, I believe that we need to humble ourselves to God and one another. We need to to, to submit ourselves and subject ourselves to God, but also to each other. We don't always get to have our own way. And in fact, Paul in Philippians tells us that we should consider one another as more important than ourselves. That we, we should look for the good for the other person. That we should look to fa- satisfy and to fulfill one another's desires over our own. That is a picture of what Jesus is doing here. He subjects himself to them. He humbles himself to his parents as he does to his heavenly Father. And as we live life together as the body of Christ, we humble ourselves to God, but we also humble ourselves to one another. And I would say we're, we're called by the Word of God to humble ourselves to the world. Not having an attitude of, we've got all the goods, we've got the right stuff, you need to listen to us. But humbly, we have heard the way of truth. We want to share it with you. We know the words of life. They would give you life as well. When Jesus does this, He goes with them and He continued in subjection to them. Verse 52 tells us, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and men. And it's somewhat of a call back to the very beginning. Verse 40, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So he's increasing in wisdom and stature, becoming the fullness of, of a man. But also, 
in favor with God and men. The word favor is the same word as grace in verse 40. Where, where the grace of God was upon him, the favor of God was upon him, now he is continuing to grow in favor with God and men. The way he lives his life, humbling himself to his parents, growing in knowledge, he grows in wisdom and stature and in grace with God and men, or in favor with God and men. And I would say that, to a certain extent, that's what we get when we humble ourselves. When we humble ourselves before the Lord and when we humble ourselves to one another, we can grow in wisdom. We can grow in stature. We can grow in favor with God because He says, hey, I'm opposed to the proud, but I give grace to the humble. God favors the humble. He gives grace to them. But also with people around us. Even, even sinful people acknowledge humble people. Those that don't uh, build themselves up. Those that don't, that don't puff themselves out. Even sinful people recognize when somebody is great, but they don't act like they're great. When they are somebody who has great position or rank in, in the world, and yet... They treat everybody equally. They think, wow, that's an awesome person. You grow in favor with them. So as we humble ourselves, as we, as we follow God, even when we don't understand His behavior, even when we don't understand why He's doing what He's doing, but if we humble ourselves before Him, and as we humble ourselves to one another, I think we will see ourselves grow in grace and wisdom. And, and that is the goal. The goal is to grow in grace and wisdom. The goal is to grow more like Christ who grew in grace and wisdom. The goal is to grow in grace that we would experience God's grace more and give God's grace more to others. And then out of that, to grow in wisdom. As, as 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, Wisdom on its own is worthless without love. And that love is seen in the grace. So we need the grace. We need to grow in grace. And out of that, to grow in wisdom as well. And that's my prayer for us this year. As, as we walk with Christ, as our focus is on being disciples and following Jesus and growing in Him and learning from Him and being who He has called us to be, May we this year grow in grace and may we grow in wisdom. Our vision, it's on the front of the, the worship order there. Sharing Jesus and showing grace across generations. May we grow in grace. So often what I see lacking in churches a lot is not the desire to share Jesus not the desire to know more about the Bible. What seems to be lacking a lot is the ability to show grace. To favor one another. May we grow in this today and this year. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that uh, You are working in our lives. 
we thank you for the, the lesson that we have, the, the reminder that Jesus wasn't being disobedient. He wasn't rebellious. He wasn't sinning against His parents. He was teaching them a difficult lesson. Lord, we pray that You would help us to learn the difficult lessons You teach us. Those times when we don't understand what You are doing. May we trust You. May we know that You are true, that You are loving, and that You do not sin. You do not cause others to sin, so Your purpose in our lives is for our good. May we trust You. We pray, Lord, that we would seek You above all other things in our lives to do Your will, to follow You, and to seek Your ways. And we pray, Lord, for our hearts that You would help us to be humble, that we would submit to You and to one another. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us to grow. Grow in grace towards one another and to ourselves. And Father, we pray that through that we would grow in wisdom to know Jesus better, to know Your heart better and Your Word better. We know that doesn't come from a position of pride or from humility. Speak to us this year, we pray, Lord. Help us to, to grow in You. That at the end of this year, as we gather on that last Sunday to worship You, we can look back. And there were times on that path we didn't know where You were headed, but we followed You anyway. And there were times when You led us and it seemed like You were messing up, but we trusted You anyway. Lord, we pray that we would be able to look back at the end of this year and see You working mightily in our lives. That we would see growth in our hearts. And Lord, that we would be more gracious and more loving and wiser people and that those around us would see that reality in our lives come January 31st, 2023. We pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.